I met Sally at her condo in a suburb of New York City. Can I take my shoes off? You do whatever you feel comfortable with. I just physically, for some reason or other, I never like to wear shoes. Sally isn't her real name. She asked us to keep her identity private when sharing her story. These days, I don't often get to meet the people I interview in person. But when I was visiting New York and realized Sally was just an hour away, I had to go meet her. There was something about her presence over the phone that I found comforting. She talks to strangers like they're old friends. And in person, she was just as inviting. Wow, this is such a beautiful home. It's comfortable. I wish I had one more bedroom, but it's, it's good. Next to the door, she had a pair of bright pink Crocs. They matched her pink shirt and the pink lanyard around her neck that holds her iPhone. Pink's a good color. (laughs) Sally lives alone and follows a strict daily routine. She wakes up, does some balance exercises, and then she'll catch up on the news. She listens to a lot of public radio, which was still playing when I walked in. Alexa, stop. And I have the same thing for breakfast every day. (laughs) What is it? I have an English muffin that's whole wheat, and half of it is covered with peanut butter, and the other half is... As we got settled into her living room, we started talking about her family, how she grew up in the South Bronx, raised mostly by her mom. Even though Sally was just a teenager, her mom would sometimes give her relationship advice. But like so many of us, Sally didn't always listen. My mother used to say that to me, have your own bank account. And I thought, oh, what what does she know? Like, you know, that's so unromantic. Sally's dad had multiple sclerosis and died when she was young. And so her mom, an Irish immigrant, started working, cleaning houses to provide for Sally and her brother. She did not grumble. She did not complain. She just, like, you just get up in the morning, put your feet on the ground, and just get going, and that's it. You know, as I'm getting older, I think back. And I think, God, she had a really good attitude. She taught Sally, do not depend on other people to get you through hard times. That way, you won't be disappointed when they let you down. And now at 79, Sally has advice of her own to share, which she admits echoes a lot of her mom's. Spend less than you earn. Save regularly. Whatever amount of money it is, be consistent about it. Take advantage of direct deposit. Know your limits. Have your own money. Have your own money and be able to spend it the way Never you get want. married to somebody that you have to apologize about. You have to excuse his that behavior. That goes along with somebody who doesn't have any real friends. Sally is a listener of the show, and she reached out to tell us about a mistake she made, one she hopes younger folks will learn from. I wrote in because I was responding to some segment that talked about, I believe, financial mistakes that people made. And I was thinking about the biggest financial mistake I ever made, which was marrying my ex-husband. I'm Rima Hreis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, the show for Marketplace where we talk about how money makes life complicated. Something I think about a lot is how messages get passed down through generations. Sometimes they're very blatant, like the advice Sally's mom gave her. And other times they're just as strong, but are never spoken aloud. And these messages can have serious impacts on us. They can shape how we see the world, the choices we make, the partners we choose. This week on the show, we've got two stories about family and money, and about how our most intimate relationships can leave the deepest financial wounds. There's a saying, what's too painful to remember, we choose to forget, and I think I have forgotten a lot by choice. Mm -hmm. I felt a lot of anger 
mostly towards myself and a lot of um, a, a lot of confusion as to how could I have been so stupid not to understand or not to see what was going on. So let's back up. I want to hear okay hear the story from the beginning. Okay. So that was your second marriage. That's right. My first marriage, I married a man that I met when I was a senior in high school. Oh, wow. And, and life was pretty tranquil. I mean, he worked, I worked. Sally and her first husband met at a New Year's Eve party where he gave her a ride home and asked for her number. They had a baby together and saved enough to buy a house. The marriage was easy. He was a good guy. And then one night he had an auto accident and he was in a coma for a week and he died. And he was, it was just a few weeks after his 25th birthday. Our daughter was 21 months old at the time. Um, I think I was in complete shock. I didn't, you know, I don't remember crying or I don't remember anything. I just, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen. So I, I was, as I say, in shock. This was 1970, and Sally had everything a woman was supposed to have. A charming love story, a house, a baby. And then her partner and all of that was just gone. Sally wasn't in a bad position financially, which was a huge relief. She worked for the state government and made decent money. But emotionally, she was at sea. First came the grief. And then as time passed, she wondered what would come next for her. Would she ever find a man who wasn't turned off by her being a widowed mother? Then, two years later, she met a guy who we'll call Todd through her job. Todd and Sally started to spend more time together. Sally liked how he interacted with her daughter, how he could get on her level. She felt less alone with him. He was a steady presence. After a year or so, they decided to get married. For whatever reason, my mother had a perspective that this guy was not right. I don't think, as I said, I don't think she understood what it was. It was just a gut feeling. But Sally was in love, so they went through with the wedding. Todd wasn't contributing financially to the marriage at first. He was a carpenter, but wanted to work for himself as an architect. So he wanted to go back to school. And I said, fine. And, you know, I supported us while he was going to school. And I didn't, I didn't expect anything from him money-wise. But there's going to be an end in sight, you know, that this is not going to be forever. Initially, she thought about supporting him financially while he got his degree as an exercise in teamwork. But when he eventually dropped out of school, Sally started to get anxious about money. I had some money in a checking account, and money was getting starting to get a little bit scarce because he wasn't um, working. And I remember thinking a couple of times, thinking, well, at least I have that little cushion there, so if anything goes wrong. She had $5,000 of cushion in her account. This was back in 1973, so today that would be over $35,000. She stopped by the bank one day while running errands and asked to withdraw some money, 100 bucks or so. But the teller told her, there's no money in your account. That cushion was gone. He had spent all the money and he never told me about it at all. She asked Todd about it. I said, "What, what happened here? And he said, well... I needed the money. I'm walking around without that much money in my pocket. I don't even think he apologized for it. Sally was hurt, but not angry, which kind of surprised me. Sally told me that her response had to do with her mom's advice. Don't expect that a man is going to support you because it's not going to happen. 
and always expect that you're going to have to take care of yourself. And in some strange way, um, that, that kept me from being as angry with him as I could have been or should have been. It struck me that though this advice sounds empowering, you know, be a strong, independent woman, it's actually a double-edged sword because it led her to feel like she was on her own in what was supposed to be a partnership. Her mom had told her, don't depend on a man. And now a man was depending on her. Where Sally had no expectations, her husband had huge plans. At this point, Todd was doing construction work, and he wanted to start flipping properties. He'd tell her, we won't have to work for the man. This business, it is going to make us millionaires. I promise. He was saying, this is, this is a great deal. I know how to fix this place up. This is in a location where we can rent it out without any real problems. It's, it's going to be a good return for the money. Let's do this. And they were successful. Sally and her husband were even able to build a bigger, fancier house. It was on an acre and a half of land with lots of room for her daughter to play. She would have been happier staying in the townhouse she bought with her first husband, but Todd insisted. Meanwhile, they kept buying new properties, renovating them, and renting them out. We turned things around. We were making money. I started signing, co-signing loans with him. And um, that's when all the problems began. She was co-signing loans to help them buy more properties. But as I talk to her, Sally pauses throughout the conversation to think. Because even today, she doesn't have the answers for what was actually happening. When you ask me these questions, I, I start wondering how much he didn't tell me. They'd get paid, her husband would cash the check, and then... Where did, he, where did this money go? I was wondering, did he have a drug problem? Or did he... What was he... Where was the money going? I, did, I just did not know then. If I didn't know then, I don't know for sure now. She later found out that he was struggling with alcoholism. But at the time, the doubt, the questions, it stirred her anxiety. She hated how it made her feel. And that's when the arguments started. I became the great white bitch of the West. I was, I was so nasty and so angry. We would have furious fights, and furious fights about stupid things. I don't particularly like air conditioning, and he did. And when one of us would take a shower, the other one had the control of the air conditioner. <laughs> and like I would turn it off, and he would come back out of the shower, and he'd say, it's so fucking hot in this room. <laughs> and I would come out and say, it's freezing here, you know. A lot of us have had those kinds of fights, where you're arguing about something petty because it's easier than talking about the real, deeper problems. As Todd kept spending and their financial life started to go downhill, Sally and her husband began borrowing money from private lenders. I wanted so much to believe that it was going to work out, that he knew what he was doing and it would work out. About a decade into their marriage, they were still depending on private loans. We used our house as collateral. So he comes upstairs one day and he says, we have to be out of this house in two weeks. And I said, oh, my God. She'd already left behind the affordable townhouse she'd bought with her first husband for this home. And now the dream was falling apart. They got a new place, but then got evicted. For a while, they stayed with a relative. Her memories of this era are defined by financial insecurity. Bounced checks, overdue bills, debt collectors. She wanted badly for the marriage to work. But her patience was wearing thin. 
Sally and Todd both worked in Manhattan and were planning to meet for lunch one afternoon. She called his office to coordinate. I asked to speak to him and they say, oh, he doesn't work here anymore. He hasn't worked here for the past two weeks. And I said, oh, (laughs) oh, okay. Sally's husband had been lying to her. He wasn't going into work. And I, again, I say, what, where, why don't you, what is what, what's going on? He's, he was getting up, getting dressed, and going out every morning as if he was going to work. So, oh my God, that's madness. So he shows up at, he shows up around lunchtime at my office. And I said, I called your office. And the minute I said I called his office, he knew, you know, I said, this is it. I am out of this. So we took the elevator down. He went one way, I went the other way. And that was it. Sally divorced him. She couldn't take any more of his lies. Even though he was out of her life, she was still on the hook for some of Todd's debts and the loans they'd co-signed. It took years for her to financially recover. But being on her own, it wasn't as scary as she thought it would be. If anything, it felt good. I knew what was going on. If money was going out, I knew when money was coming in, and I was in control. I could make the choices, and I could breathe. I could just breathe normally. But she didn't yet realize the ways the marriage would haunt her. It's been decades since all of this went down. But talking to Sally today, it's clear that this had a profound impact on her. Like, at one point, she tells me she's going to spend the afternoon going over her bills. Even though most of her finances are on auto pay, she double-checks everything by hand, writing out all the expenses to make sure everything adds up. She remembers how it felt when her wages were garnished because of missed bill payments, or how she'd sneak into the back door of her home to avoid process servers. If I get somebody ringing my doorbell and I don't expect it, I get really nervous. I've always been someone who's going to live within my means. But this intensified it that I have to have every bill paid in full every month. I can't carry a balance. Looking back, Sally wishes she hadn't jumped into a marriage so soon. Maybe if I had, maybe if I had waited longer, I would not have felt such a need. And maybe I would have been a little bit more mature in, in being able to judge someone. She's reminded of what could have been every time she thinks about the house she lived in with her first husband. I lived across the street from where I am now, which is twice the size of this, and it would have been paid off. And, you know, if I had never met him, I would probably be still living there, and uh, I'd have a lot more money to my name. Wait, it's just across the street? Yeah, right across the street. Like, can you see it from the window? Uh, well, if you walk down the street a little bit, you can see it. After her second marriage, Sally never pursued another serious relationship. Hearing Sally's story, I thought about how financial anxieties get passed down through generations. Like, Sally's mom taught her to never depend on anyone else. And that sense of anxiety only compounded when, after trusting the wrong person, Sally almost lost everything. And now, Sally's racked with anxiety for her two granddaughters. She'll often grab them by the arm and tell them, listen, you have to save money, you have to be consistent, you have to spend less than you earn, and most importantly... No woman can depend on a man. You have to be able to take care of yourself. That's it. And I have said that in so many words so many times. How do they usually respond? 
Yes, Grandma. (laughs) After the break, how do you come back from finding out someone you love spent your college fund? During our first season of This Is Uncomfortable, back in 2019, I talked with a woman named Haley McKnight. She was a mother of two, living in Texas with her husband. Back then, she told me about a pivotal moment in her life. How, when she was in high school, getting ready to apply for college, she was sitting at her desk filling out a financial aid form. That's when she turned to her dad and asked him about the college savings account her grandpa had set up for her before he died. Dad is kind of standing behind me. I said, hey, how much is in that college fund that was set up for me? I mean, last I heard, it was like 20000 so it should be even more than that, right? And he looks at me and he goes, oh, there's about $100 in there. And I kind of dead stopped and I said, excuse me, what? Well, where is it? And he goes, well, how do you think we've been living all these years without me having a job? Haley's dad had been raising her since her parents' divorce. He lost his job when she was 14 and had kind of checked out. He spent more time with his girlfriend, leaving Haley home alone. So realizing that he spent her college fund, that was the last straw. I sort of, like, black out from rage. I remember just kind of screaming at him. Just, I hate you. I can't believe you did this. That money was mine. You stole it from me. Haley told me that discovering this betrayal was a turning point in their relationship— The money was especially sentimental because when her dad wasn't around, it was her grandfather who played with her, who showed her love and care. And even a decade later, when she was in her 30s, she could not let it go, her dad just blowing through her college fund behind her back, even if he didn't see it that way. I don't think she knew that we were broke. I never wanted her to to worry about money. Her dad, Rick, told me that after being laid off from his IT job, It was a struggle to pay bills and get food on the table. He knew the money was for her education, but he thought it was better to use it to meet the needs of the moment. So rather than me borrowing a bunch of money and getting in debt, I just was drawing off of that fund. I didn't see any other way to maintain a lifestyle that either one of us would be comfortable with. I wasn't spending it on me. I was spending it on us. When I last spoke with Rick and Haley, Rick had been trying to make amends. He contributed to his daughter's student loan payments, and he helped her buy her first house. But for Haley, that still didn't feel like enough to erase what he did. When we first published this story, we got a surprising mix of reactions. Some people really sympathized with Haley, while others couldn't understand why she was so upset. Over the last four years, I've found myself thinking a lot about our conversation— So last week, I texted Haley to see if she was free to catch up. She responded right away and told me she had big life updates. So we hopped on a Zoom call. So I'm curious, how would you describe your relationship with your dad these days? Actually, my relationship with my dad has, I would say, improved. And honestly, since um, everything has been paid off and he was helping me to do that... I did. I made the last payment um, 
this week. So oh my gosh. it's really, yeah, like it's just done. They sent me a letter in the mail and it said, hey, we're done with you. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been so pleased to be dumped by something. I was like, yes. <laughs> Good riddance. She paid off about $45,000 in loans. Took her 15 years with some help from her dad. Um, my dad, he would send me money every month that would go straight toward the loan. So he would basically mm. make my monthly payments for me oh. as kind of a an act of contrition, I guess. But mm -hmm. it was... It was a very nice gesture, and it was something that I truly appreciated. Mm. And it's one of the things that really kind of helped to mend the relationship. He really, he came in in the pinch when mm -hmm. I needed him to. When we last talked, you explained how your dad using your college fund was a really pivotal moment in your life that left these pretty lasting impacts on you. Uh, do you still feel that way, given how much he's contributed to your financial life over these last several years? Um, I will say toward my dad, I, I don't harbor any ill feelings anymore. Mm. I mean, it was something that he thought he needed to do at that time. He was unemployed. He was trying to take care of me. The money was there. He was in charge of it. Like as an adult and as a parent, I can mm. understand that. But I also really would have appreciated just you know, treating me more like a person who the money belongs to and discussing it and be like, look, right. honey, I'm not employed. I need your help. You know, can I use this money so we can pay our bills? Mm -hmm. You know, just something. Mm -hmm. If he would have just asked instead of just done, it would have been very different. Hearing Haley explain things in this way, her anger makes a lot more sense to me. It wasn't so much about the money as it was about wanting her dad, who she already felt hurt by, to be more transparent with her, to treat her with respect. As her two kids have gotten older, that's how Haley approaches things with them. Whenever money was tight and they wanted a bunch of stuff, I would mm -hmm. tell them, you know, mm -hmm. money's tight right now, so that money needed to go towards the bills that help keep us comfortable and safe and fed. So I want to make sure that as these things are happening, I'm discussing it with them in yeah. age-appropriate terminology, yeah. you know, for them to understand that how all of us are connected by money. We didn't talk with Haley's dad for this update, but she tells us he's enjoying retired life and traveling in an RV with Haley's stepmom. Even though Haley's on good terms with him now, the betrayal of trust followed her into adulthood and into the next big financial relationship she'd have. It did, of course, have lasting effects on my security and the way I viewed money. And I mean, mm -hmm. going into the marriage I did where I still wasn't privy to the finances, despite how many times I asked, it was, I was like, okay, do I just not get to see my own money ever? Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, and do you feel like that connects back to what happened with your dad? I do, very much. I mean, it almost felt like, okay, well, I guess everybody's just welcome to my money but me, I guess. <laughs> when Haley and I talked last time, she hadn't shared anything about her husband. I knew she was married, but we didn't get into the financial details of their relationship. So this was all news to me. She tells me that when they first got married many years ago, 
Things were smooth. Her husband was this funny, sweet guy who shared the same values as her. She liked that they divided up housework, that things felt equal. He was the one who managed their finances, which Haley initially appreciated. But as time went on, it started to irk her. They had separate accounts, but after she'd deposit her paychecks, he'd basically drain her account to pay the family's bills. He would always talk to me about how, oh, it's going to be really tight this month. I need to take more than usual out of your account. We're not going to be able to make our bills. And I would say, how? Mm. And he would go, what do you mean? And I would say, how do we not make our bills with how much money you make? She says her husband had a good-paying job, made about $175,000. And Haley worked at a local supermarket, making about $55,000. You know, and he would just say, well... I've got lots of loans, and then this is expensive, and then I have to do this, and I have to pay for my own way whenever we go have conferences. And, you know, he said a bunch of stuff that naive me, who never traveled and never really knew any better, was like, oh, okay. Can you share some examples of uh, what it was like to not have control over your finances? Like, how did that translate in your day-to-day life? There would be times where I would go to the grocery store to buy groceries for the week and my card would ding insufficient funds. And so that was always really embarrassing. And I remember going, wow, why am I working full time and busting my butt at this Mm -hmm. job I hate? I have no idea (laughs) because it doesn't, Mm -hmm. I don't even get to use this money. And, And were there times where you tried to gain control over your own finances, like hold on to your own paychecks? Um, by the end of our relationship, I was so resentful and angry about it all that I just decided, well, he can't use my money if there's not any money there. I was just rage buying. So Mm. (laughs) I just bought things. I was like, you know what? I've always wanted this and I'm going to do it. So I would just go buy clothes or I would go buy cute things or I would buy fun stuff for the house or more elephant figurines because I've been collecting them since I was born, basically. So I I would kind of just do whatever. And if I felt like eating out, I would go out to eat. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? It felt, it was exhilarating, honestly. Like part of it was very much, yeah, take that, you jerk. But Mm. the other part was, wow, this is what it feels like to go to work and work really hard and earn money and actually get to do stuff with it, something Mm. that you choose. This is incredible. And that's when it kind of clicked also that I was like, I think this is how it's supposed to be. I think people are supposed to be in control of their own finances, you know? Oh, that must have been so suffocating. Yes. I mean, I I felt... When I I feel completely out of control in a situation, I Mm. don't feel safe. I don't feel like my opinions or my voice is being heard. It took her back to how she felt when she was 17, filling out college forms and realizing her dad had drained her college fund without ever telling her. And, you know, when I feel like people just don't really care about my thoughts or what I have to say or how I can contribute, that definitely hits my self-worth pretty hard. Yeah, it makes you question yourself and right, what like, you can contribute. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's like, okay, well, maybe the reason everybody treats me this way is because I'm secretly really stupid or mm. I'm, you know, 
nobody sees me as smart enough to handle my own money. Right, right. So, yeah. I mean, that makes that makes sense. You start you start doubting yourself. Right. So mm-hmm. I started talking to my therapist about those feelings, about how it doesn't necessarily feel right. Something feels wrong about, you know, not being in control of my own life. And so the more we discussed that about the money thing, she was the one that encouraged me to, you know, question it, to approach him and say, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, I deserve to know about the finances as well. I'm the other contributing adult to this household. There were other reasons for her family's financial troubles, but Haley didn't realize the extent of it at the time. Her husband had a substance use disorder. She'd supported him through programs like AA, but eventually it became too much to handle. And so since we last talked, she decided to separate from her husband. When I first met him, it was a very different person, but yeah. that's that's what addiction will do. And that's what I told the kids when I explained to them that we were separating. I said, look, I don't know who this person is, but addiction took your dad from me. Then, several months after the separation, her husband died unexpectedly from an accidental drug overdose. My best friend, my soulmate, is gone. I realized that not every marriage ends the way that my grandparents' marriage did, where they had 50-something wonderful years together. Mm. You know, not everybody ends that way, no matter how much you wanted it to. After her husband's death, family finances changed. The way our finances were laid out, my husband's income was about 75% of our total income. So I was really scared that I wouldn't be able to make ends meet. But what I learned through all that is um, I could actually make the bills on my income alone, which led to a lot of questions like, where is the money going? Why were we always struggling? And when we were cleaning out his apartment, it just led into a very deep rabbit hole where he had a lot of demons that he was not discussing. Going through his computer and looking through the finances, she discovered a lot of surprises, not just drugs. It was basically anything to make him feel any kind of joy or excitement or anything. So it also branched out to shopping. He was always buying something. And as we've been cleaning out even this house, I'm finding things all over the place that he bought that were still in packages. I found three different dash cams that he never put up. Their shared money had been feeding his secretive shopping and drug use. I was in the dark all the time, and... After all my years of therapy and, you know, talking about these events and kind of working through them, I realized that's not normal. That's not the way people function. They discuss things openly Mm. together. They're open about finances. They're not trying to hide things from you Mm -hmm. all the time. And so, like, realizing that and realizing that I was worth my own money made a big difference So how would you describe your relationship to money today? It's really comforting to me to be the one in control of my finances. It's comforting to me to be able to be the one that says, no, we don't need to spend this money right now because we need to take care of our needs first and then we'll see what's left for Mm -hmm. once. And it's Mm -hmm. been really nice. All of the payments now, instead of being late or not at all, 
are now early. And, you know, it just feels really good to be able to make my house payment a week before it's due. Today, Haley is seeing someone new. This relationship was supposed to be casual, but... We ended up falling for each other rather quickly. He owned his own business and had his own finances in order, which I was already like, oh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, he had a son as well. Yeah. Um, You know, the kids met and they really hit it off and it just kind of felt right to pursue. And so how are you approaching finances now with your boyfriend? We don't share bank accounts or anything like that, but um, he is like me in a lot of ways where he is very money conscious. You know, before he Mm -hmm. makes a purchase, he will do research, he will discuss it with me. And, you know, that's amazing to me for him to come up and just say, hey, I really want to get this. I think it'll be beneficial in this, this, and this way. So, you know, it's, it's incredible. This is the kind of, you know, financial relationship that feels right. Before my money goes to anybody else, it's mine. I get to choose where it goes. You know, I, I deserve to be able to do that. I am definitely smart enough to do that. And, you know, now I'm starting to realize that. All right, that is all for our show this week. As always, if you have a story about money or work that you'd like to share with us, or if you just want to shoot us a note, we love hearing from you all. You can always email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, if you want more This Is Uncomfortable content, be sure to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. We share the best things we're reading, watching, cooking. Be sure to check that out by signing up at marketplace.org slash comfort. This episode was produced by Alice Wilder, Yvonne Marquez, and Zoe Saunders. It was hosted by Rima Chres. Alice, Zoe, and Rima wrote the script together. This episode got additional support from Hannah Harris-Green and me, H. Conley. I'm the intern. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Bridget Bodner is Marketplace's director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, we'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>